Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Queens of Ice and Fire, the consorts of Game of Thrones. So, wait, what? I told you last time that I was going to be giving you part two of Elizabeth of York. What gives? Well, funny story. Shortly after posting the last episode, I was told about a family emergency that required me to fly off to America for a week. I got back to the UK on Monday, only to discover I'd left my beloved, trusty laptop in Boston Logan Airport. Don't! Luckily, my ever wonderful other half was able to arrange its retrieval from the airport, but I won't be able to get it back till mid-November, so I'm stuck with my old machine, a computer that I ran into the ground after five gruelling years of use, and is now about as powerful as, to quote Blackadder, an asthmatic ant with some heavy shopping. As you might imagine, that rather put pay to my ability to put out a new, well-researched episode worthy of the Queens of England podcast, especially for such an important queen as Elizabeth of York. Also, you might notice that the sound quality in this episode is not quite as good as my last one. It's because I had all my old settings on the other laptop, so I had to kind of MacGyver it back. I promise we'll be back to normal quality as soon as I can, but until then, you're stuck with this. With regard to the content... You're now getting, instead of Elizabeth of York, a little supplemental on a topic that is very dear to my heart. The last few supplementals that I've done have been on royal mistresses, one as a supplemental to this show, another two as guest episodes on other podcasts. And before that, I did one on a fictional queen and another on a warrior queen who would be king. Today, I'll be talking about a little of all of these things as I discuss the consort of the world of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series though you probably all know it, from the HBO TV series Game of Thrones. Now, I know that many of you have not read the books or seen the TV series. To you, I first say, please go do that. They're both really great. If that doesn't convince you, then stick around anyway, because there's a lot of good queenie content here for you to enjoy. I've put in the show notes a short video that can very quickly get you up to date with the story, up to and including the most recent series, or you can just enjoy this cold. It goes without saying, though, that this episode is completely spoilertastic, so if I can't talk you into giving it a go regardless, then no worries. I'll see you back next time for Elizabeth of York. For the rest of you, though, before getting going, I have some notices. Most importantly, I'd like to thank my newest supporters on Patreon, both of whom are from the US, Donnie from Minneapolis and Brooks from the hometown of me leaving a laptop, Boston. They have both made very generous donations, which has amazingly allowed me to make this podcast pay for itself. 
Wow, thanks so much to you all. I have no need to fear the bill from Squarespace anymore. I would, though, be really grateful if you could still consider supporting me on Patreon. It would mean a lot, and I have promised that if I get up to my target of $200 a month, then I could go and make this podcast weekly. I also have a wedding coming up, and it's nice to see money flowing into my bank account for a change. Anyway, TLDNL, if you would like to send some support my way, head to patreon.com slash queensofenglandpodcast. If you're not that way inclined, then there is also my Facebook page, Queens of England Podcast, my Twitter, at Queens Podcast, and my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. And of course, there is iTunes, but you knew all about that already, didn't you? Okay, are you ready? Great. Let's delve into a world of ice and fire. For this show, I will mostly be drawing on the canon of the books, which is a little bit different from that of the TV show. That said, I will be shoving in a few clips here and there from the show, and the odd bit of TV canon. Where that is the case, I will let you know. For those of you who are noobs and didn't watch the video in the show notes, or who have seen it but could do the little refresher, here is the world of the series in about 90 seconds. Okay, I'm going to speak fast, so try to keep up. There is an island in the Western Sea called Westeros that is ruled by a king. This land is a union of seven previous kingdoms, think Anglo-Saxon England as an example. It used to be ruled by the Targaryens, but their last king went mad and their house was banished. It's now ruled by a man who banished them, Robert Baratheon, who is married to Cersei of the fabulously wealthy Lannister family. They are based in the south in King's Landing, a city that's suspiciously similarly located to London. The north is controlled by the Starks, led by Ned Stark, who is Robert's chief minister. He has a wife called Catelyn and some sons, including his eldest Rob, and daughters, one of whom, Sansa, is engaged to the edge of the throne, Joffrey. There is also the Tyrells, who control the cultural capital kingdom and have a daughter called Marjorie, who we'll get back to. The last remaining Targaryen, sorta kinda, is Daenerys, who spends most of the series in exile in the steppy, deserty southern continent, trying to raise an army to win back her kingdom. Back to the Lannisters, the big secret that really everyone knows is that the children of King Robert, who is killed by the way quite early on, are not in fact his, but the product of an incestuous relationship between Cersei and her brother Jaime. These children are the sadistic Joffrey, Demir Marcella, and the rather simple but lovable Tommen. There are three main religions in the world of Westeros, the Old Gods, who are based on nature, the New Gods, or the Seven, which are the dominant faith and based on something quite similar to the Christian Holy Trinity, where you have seven in one theological practice. Finally, you have the Lord of Light. This is an insurgent, religion, and monotheistic, only believing in one deity. It's far less tolerant than the other two, and involves a lot of burning people alive. The world is recognisably medieval, albeit with a ton of fancy influences and the orbit of magic. In terms of the period, it's a little bit all over the place, borrowing on Saxon, Viking, Byzantine, Arab, and even Reformation influences in terms of ideas. I've posted a map of the world in the show notes as well, along with some other info that should help you along. Okay. So I'm a good way into this show already, and I still haven't really told you what I'm going to talk about. Well, if you scooch all the way back to episode 2, I talked about the traditional notions of what made a good queen, the roles of the office of queenship. These are the things that all queens were expected to do and they were expected to be, and of course the other way around, what they could not do and could not be. Throughout the show, I have measured our various queens up to these yardsticks and seen how they stacked up. The most important are 1. Motherhood, as the first duty of queenship was to produce a legitimate heir. 2. Political advantage and wealth, as a wife should bring something to the match, be it a large dowry, foreign alliance, or an end to a conflict. 3. Piety, as the queen was held up as an exemplar of purity. And 4. A gentle influence on the king to curb his excesses. What they were not supposed to do were to interfere where they were not wanted in political affairs, or rule in their own right unless specifically requested by their husbands for limited periods while they were away. What I'm going to do then is look at these things in turn and see how the women in the series stack up. I will be mostly focusing on the Queen's consort, Cersei Lannister, Marjorie Tyrell focusing on her Lannister marriages rather than the one to Renly, Daenerys Targaryen while she was Khaleesi, Jane Westerling who was the wife of Robb Stark in the books, and also Sansa Stark in her role as betrothed wife to Joffrey. But others may pop up along the way. Okay, we're going to start with motherhood. I'll tell you a story. You know the one about the mother lion and her little cub. 
They lived in the woods, in the king's wood. They lived a mother and her cub. She loved him very much. But there were other things that lived in the woods, evil things. Like what? Wolves. He could hear them howling in the night. Little cub was frightened. His mother said, You are a lion, my son. You mustn't be afraid. For one day all the beasts will bow to you. You will be king. All the stags will bow, all the wolves will bow. The bears in the north and the foxes of the south. All the birds in the sky and the beasts in the sea. They will all come to you, little lion, to rest a crown upon your head. And the cub said, Will I be strong and fierce like my father? Yes, said his mother. You will be strong and fierce just like your father. I will keep you safe, my love. I promise you. The requirement to produce an heir is as critical in this world as it was in our medieval world. Women were ignored in the line of succession for the most part, and so it was sons that were crucial. This is shown in the Baratheon Lannister royal family, where after the death of Joffrey, the throne passed not to Marcella, who was the next eldest, but to Tommen, who was younger, but male. Asha Greyjoy, who the TV series people will know as Yara, was the clear best candidate to rule the Iron Islands, but was defeated because her uncle was a man. That's not to mention all the problems that Daenerys has convincing men to take her seriously. In our medieval world, women were seen through the biblical dichotomy of Eve and the Virgin Mary, absolute evil and absolute perfection. On one hand, we have the person who through disobedience and immorality caused the fall of man, and the other, the pious demure woman who gave birth to the Son of God. In the Westerosi world, we have the mother. She is one of the seven, and one of its most important faces. We can learn a lot indeed from the hymn to the mother, which is told to us in the book Clash of Kings. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know a better day. Gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kinder way. The mother is seen through the prism of guiding and raising her children, teaching her sons to seek means of resolving disputes without fighting, her daughters essentially by teaching her sons that lesson so that they might be protected. In the same book, it is suggested that the mother was the fiercest of the seven when her children were in peril, a curious kind of misogynistic feminism there. Okay, let's start with the most notable Westerosi queen, Cersei Lannister. Of course, the prime imperative of queenship was the production of heirs, and she did well there, producing three children, two of which were sons. So far, so good. If we delve a little deeper, we can see that Joffrey, the eldest, was born about three years after Rob's accession to the throne. Not the speediest, but still a pretty quick turnaround. And the next two children came in quick succession after that. With two healthy sons and a daughter of to marry off for profit, and the kingdom seemingly at peace, this all looks great. Ten points to Cersei. Except, of course, there is that pesky illegitimacy problem. In the eyes of the kingdom, these are the children of the king, but of course we know that they are all bastards. Their father is none other than their uncle Jamie. Now we're going to get into piety a little later, but there is a reason, beyond pure misogyny, why it was so important for the queens to remain faithful to their husbands. Theoretically, the royal succession in both the late medieval world and the Westerosi worked on strict male primogeniture, the succession of the eldest son. If there was no son, then the throne would go to your brother and his children, and so on, until you found someone alive. The passage of the throne after death was the most dangerous moment for a kingdom, as this was always going to be the best time for someone to claim the throne. Any rumour, any hint that the heir might be illegitimate, could be fatal to maintaining the royal peace. 
This is, of course, what happened when Robert Baratheon died. His son's legitimacy was doubted, and so the throne was claimed by both of Robert's brothers as well, Stannis and Renly. Stannis, of course, had the best legal claim, but once the succession was in any doubt, all bets were off, and anyone with any kind of claim could have a shot. In our story, there are a few parallels. The most obvious one is to Anne Boleyn, who was rumoured, almost certainly falsely, to have had an affair with her brother Thomas while married to Henry VIII, as well as having had numerous other affairs. We'll go into this in more detail when we cover Anne, but suffice it to say that, at a time when Henry was desperate to have a son, any notion that Anne might be putting that in jeopardy did not go down well. From the period that we have covered so far, the best example is not actually a queen, but Cecily, Duchess of York, who, after Edward IV married Elizabeth Woodville, bizarrely claimed that she had had an affair around the time he was conceived. This was not a huge threat to Edward's kingship at the time, but was used by Richard III as part of the justification of his usurpation. Motherhood in the series can also be used as a weapon against the Queen's now story. When Sansa Stark is wedded to Ramsay Bolton, technically not a king, but clearly has pretensions in that direction, and this only happens in the TV series, by the way, not in the books, it is frequently inferred, sometimes outright stated, that her only use to him is as a baby-carrying vessel. The son is all that was required. For a legitimate son not only secured the future stability of the kingdom, but also the present stability, as people could plan for a peaceful future rather than a violent one. The show also brings up other aspects of motherhood quite a bit, most especially the tiger mother trope, the woman who will do anything to protect her children. For example, most of Cersei's actions in the TV series especially, and to an extent the books, are presented as being all about securing the end goal of a secure kingship for her sons. In the audio clip that I played at the beginning of this section, we have her talking to her son Tommen while a huge battle raged around her, telling him how one day he will be a great king, a lion, the symbol of his house, and all the others around will bow to him. The same can be said for Catelyn Stark, who again, not a queen, was the wife of the Warden of the North, who was really a sub-monarch up there in all but name. She releases her son's most important prisoner, Jaime Lannister, in order that he might secure the freedom of her daughters, Arya and Sansa. She had no guarantees, but she did it just on the off chance it might work. Jaime was her most important chip, but she gave it up in a heartbeat to protect her kids. Now, medieval mothers are famously uninvolved parents, generally, supervising the raising of their children, but doing so through a whole army of staff right from birth. When they did get involved, they could be terrible mothers. Look at Eleanor of Aquitaine, who famously played favourites with her kids, preferring Richard above all others. Not, of course, that her husband was any better. In the Wars of the Roses period, though, we do have some more tiger mothery stuff going on, with Margaret von Schuh especially doing everything in her power to secure the throne for her son, Edward of Westminster. She was willing to reduce her husband's kingship to a laughable protectorship in favour of her son, and thought nothing of burning the kingdom to the ground to unseat the Yorkists. She only stopped her campaign when her son was killed and therefore all hope of his succession extinguished. Moving on from motherhood, we then move on to a queen's next most important attribute, what she brought to the match. Impossible. Why? My grandson is the pride of High Garden, the most desirable bachelor in all seven kingdoms. Your daughter is rich, the most beautiful woman in all seven kingdoms, and the mother of the king. Old. Old? Old. Her change will be upon her before long. I'll spare you the details of what will happen then. You men may have a stomach for bloodshed and slaughter, but this is another matter entirely. The years punish us as well, I promise you that. My stomach... Remains quite strong, however. 
The only thing that might turn it are details of your grandson's nocturnal activities. Do you deny them? Oh, not at all. And a boy with his affliction should be grateful for the opportunity to marry the most beautiful woman in the kingdoms and remove the stain from his name. Since it was hard to know whether a queen was fertile or not, especially as they were expected to be virgins upon marriage, the great thing that recommended a woman to a king, initially, was her family. If her family was wealthy, then they could bankroll the kingdom with a big dowry. If she came from a more powerful or prestigious family or king than the king, then she would reflect that onto her new husband. The marriage could also secure a peace between warring families or kingdoms, or cement alliances. Love was nice, but irrelevant. Now, there are a ton of these throughout the series, so I will look at some of the most important royal marriages in Westeros and what recommended each of them. Back to Cersei, her marriage to Robert Baratheon was certainly not one of love for either, as both of them wanted to marry people they couldn't have. Cersei's love of her brother was, to say the least, frowned upon, and Robert was still in love with his dead sweetheart, Lyanna Stark. Their marriage came at the establishment of the new regime and was really the perfect political match. It cemented the alliance between two key members of the rebellion that had unseated the Targaryens, Baratheons and Lannisters, binding them together in perpetual alliance, theoretically at least. Winning the throne was one thing, securing it was another entirely, and so this match was designed to keep everything stable after the upheaval of civil war. It was also financially beneficial for Robert Baratheon, as the Lannisters were the wealthiest family in the kingdom, as they controlled hugely lucrative gold mines. It is said at numerous times throughout the series that the Lannisters bankrolled the kingdom, and it is once the money ran out that everything really went to hell. This idea of two allies binding themselves together through marriage for mutual protection and security is never quite so stark in our story, but it can be seen in a few matches. In the marriage of the future Edward III to Philippa of Hainaut, Edward Westminster to Anne Neville, and the initial betrothal of Henry Tudor to Elizabeth of York, their respective parents were pre-making the alliances through marriage that would bind their powerful houses together once they'd overthrown the kings that sat on the throne. In terms of marrying for wealth, a great example is Henry II's marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine. At the time, he was not a king, though he would in time gain the throne, and marrying Eleanor brought about a third of France into English domination, creating the Angevin Empire, probably the greatest continental land empire England would ever control. There is a similar theme to Marjorie Tyrell's marriages to both Joffrey and Tommen. It was the Tyrells that came to the rescue of the Lannisters at the Battle of Blackwater, where the army of Stannis Baratheon was defeated. Selling a little? Or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The last minute by a Tyrell counterattack. This was a new alliance designed to dominate the kingdom, at least the part of the kingdom that was not currently in flames. And it was cemented by the marriage of Marjorie Tyrell, the daughter of the current head of House Tyrell, to King Joffrey. This bound the two families together, even though most of them distrusted at best, and at worst, despised the other. When Joffrey was murdered, it was considered essential to maintain the alliance by marrying Marjorie to the new king, his brother Tommen, since the initial match had not been consummated. An obvious parallel can be made here to the life of Catherine of Aragon, who married Prince Arthur, eldest son of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, and then, after Arthur's sudden death, married his brother Henry, who had become Henry VIII. Then there is Cersei's betrothal to Loras Tyrell, which is what his grandmother and father were talking about in the audio clip earlier. It is a patently absurd match between two people who could not be less suited, but it was designed to bind the houses together even more tightly, and so it was agreed to. I've talked already about Sansa Stark and Ramsay Bolton, but of course she had already been betrothed once, and actually married as well before then. At the start of the series, she is betrothed to Joffrey, once again to cement the alliance of House Baratheon and House Stark. Lord Ned Stark and King Robert were already firm friends and allies, so this was a reward more than anything else, raising the Stark to the big leagues down south by making one of their own a queen. Her later marriage to Tyrion Lannister was something else entirely. Tyrion, being an ugly dwarf, was not a particularly appealing choice as a husband, and Sansa was a big problem, as she was a lightning rod for trouble since her brother was currently doing very well in a rebellion against the Lannisters. This marriage then would nullify that threat by binding Sansa to the Lannisters, and giving Tyrion an opportunity to produce children and add to the Lannister line. There was also a sadistic element, but the political logic was sound. If they had had children, the Lannisters would have had claims to the Stark inheritance well, which would have been useful had it lasted. There isn't a great parallel for Sansa, though the notion of a queen as an unhappy pawn in the marriage game of people who did not have her best interests at heart is not uncommon in our queens. Catherine of Valois slash France is probably the best example of this. She was the prize of Henry V, and her marriage to him was mandated in the peace that led to the Anglo-Burgundian domination of France until the Treaty of Arras. She was a symbol of a failed regime and failed kingdom, married as a trophy to its conqueror. On the other side of the coin, though, we have the most ill-advised marriage in our series, that of Rob Stark to Jane Westerling. This goes down a little differently in the TV series, as they inexplicably change Jane to a Valentian woman called Talisa. Anyway, the point is that the king in the north, Rob Stark, was betrothed to one of the daughters of Walder Frey, an important yet despicable man whose house controlled a vital crossing point that Rob needed to use to take his fight to the Lannisters. This was a sound political match, but he threw it all away to marry a nobody. Jane was a noblewoman, but of very low rank. It was a love match, and nothing more, bringing Rob no advantage. Talisa in the TV series isn't even a noblewoman, merely a healer from Volantis. By rejecting the phrase and marrying a nobody for love, Rob fell into a trap that nobody set for him, and this led to his death and the destruction of his cause. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that this has a remarkable similarity with the case of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Elizabeth was a nobody just like Jane, but used her beauty and charm to seduce the king and marry him in secret. While the rebellion of Warwick against him was not solely because of this decision, it is possible to argue that it may not have happened if Edward had just married someone that Warwick deemed suitable. This led to his overthrow and could have ended his kingship just like it had done for Rob. Okay, the next attribute of queenship is piety. 
Protect me in the darkness. Burn away my sins. Help me serve you. Use me as you will, for the night is dark and full of terrors. I have prayed day and night for you to come to me. Lady, let's come sooner. The battle. I know of your troubles, my king. The Lady Melisandre has told me everything. Yes, of course. You mustn't despair. Your claim is true. You will be victorious. I believe that once. You are the one God's champion and the finest man I've ever known. Silies, I've broken a sacred vow. I've sinned. I've wronged you. I have shamed you. You're doing God's work. Don't understand. The Lady Melisandre. I know, Stannis. The Lady Melisandre has told me everything. No act done in service of the Lord of Light can ever be a sin. Like I mentioned before, there are a number of Westerosi religions, the most important being the Old Gods, the Seven, and the Lord of Light, but there are also others out there. For the Dothraki, the thinly veiled homage to the Mongol hordes of the Middle Ages, they worship the Horse God, the Great Stallion, and they take their veneration of it very seriously, as Daenerys was to find out when she became a Khaleesi, a Dothraki queen. When it was discovered that she was pregnant, she was required to take place in a ceremonial consumption of a horse's heart. It was key that she eat it raw, without retching or throwing it up. If she managed that, then she would have a swift and fearless son. This all takes place in the sacred city of Vyas Dothrak, in front of the most powerful warriors and priestesses of the kingdom, and was a key test of her commitment to her marriage and new faith. In the most recent season, she's essentially retired to a nunnery, as all widows of Karls were instantly transformed in status. They were revered and given a sort of retroactive virginal status, similar to the Vestal Virgins in ancient Rome. Ensconced in the temple of Doshkalin, they serve as the leaders of the Dothraki religion, immune from harm from the rapacious Dothraki men. The idea of queens entering nunnery after their husband died or as they neared death is common in the Middle Ages. Berengaria of Navarre retired almost immediately after the death of Richard the Lionheart, as did Eleanor of Provence, and most famously, both Eleanor of Aquitaine and Elizabeth Woodville both entered nunneries in the final years of their lives. The most pious queen in the series, though, is probably Selyse, wife and queen of Stannis Baratheon. Her faith, the Lord of Light, is constant and unwavering. She supports Stannis' creepy sexual relationship with the Princess Melisange because she believes it is what the Lord of Light wanted. She is a true believer, unlike her husband and many of his followers, as you can tell from the clip I played earlier. Most of her scenes involve her in prayer, and her faith in Stannis' cause is based not only in her belief in him, but her surety that God is on his side, and therefore he cannot fail. In terms of the Seven, Marjorie Tyrell uses the queenly requirement for piety absolutely to her advantage. In her palace power struggle with Cersei for political influence, she positions herself as the champion of the poor, distributing food in an orphanage in a clearly carefully staged move. Pious charity is something that no one could do anything but support, and the best example that springs to mind from our story is Matilda of Scotland. If you remember, she was not far off being named a saint, and most famously was spotted by her brother David washing the feet of lepers and kissing the sores. When challenged on this, she chastised him for his lack of piety. Though Marjorie did not go that far, this act of charity and concern for those less fortunate marked her out as different from the outwardly cold, calculating Cersei. She has no patience for religion, and is often openly disdainful of the Seven. She makes a deal with the Faith Militant, an extremist group that really is a combination of early Franciscans and ISIS, but that comes back to bite her when the Faint Militant imprison her and force her to confess her immoral behaviour. 
Her sins are mostly sexual in nature, that she conducted incestuous relationships with her brother and committed adultery with her cousin. As part of her penance, she is forced to complete a walk of shame, naked through the streets of the capital, King's Landing. In my special episode for the History of England on Jane Shaw, I already mentioned the parallels in this penance walk. While we don't have sexual sinners quite as egregious as Cersei in our story, we do have quite a few that are definitely painted as such. Of course, there's Anne Boleyn, who I've already mentioned, but let's not forget Isabella of France, who conducted a long-running affair with Roger Mortimer both before and after her husband's death and overthrow at their hand. You can also throw Joanna of Navarre into the mix. Her sins were not sexual, but magical. She was accused after the death of her husband of being a witch, which of course was a crime against God. This was used to discredit her and seize all of her cash, yet another example of God being invoked to deprive a queen of her power. Speaking of which, we now finally get to the most contentious aspect of queenship. Power. I must say, I cannot see how... In light of your position as commander of the Lannister armies, it would please the king if you would serve as his master of war. No man living better deserves the title. That is kind of you to say. I would like to hear it from the king himself. The king is very busy at this moment. He should be here, learning what it means to rule. He is learning. On this occasion, in his capacity as ruler, he's asked me to speak on his behalf. I return to the capital to pay my respects to my brother, and to you, and to serve the king. I did not return to the capital to serve as your puppet, to watch you stack the small council with sycophants, sending your own brother away so he won't be present. My brother has left the capital to lead a sensitive diplomatic mission. What mission? That is not your concern as master of war. I do not recognize your authority to dictate what is and is not my concern. You are the Queen Mother. Nothing more. You would abandon your king in his time of need. If he wants to send for me, I will be waiting for him. At Casterly Rock. Queens were expected to tow a very, very fine line here. While on the throne, they were supposed to be seen and not heard. What influence they had was meant to be used only in the defence of the church, to help those in need, and give the king an out if he wanted to look manly but magnanimous. They were supposed to offer sage counsel, but butt out when things got violent. For the most part, anyway. If they survived their husband, then they were supposed to guide their sons to their minority should there be one, and then either retire somewhere quiet, or continue to offer sage advice using their years of experience, but again, butt out when men were talking. I think it's easier again to just take each queen in turn, and we will start, of course, with Cersei. While she was King Robert's queen, she seems to have played pretty much no formal role in the running of the kingdom. Of course, we know that she was Machiavellianing all over the place, having people killed and the like, but in terms of the public-facing stuff, she was pretty nondescript. This all changed after her husband's death and she became Queen Mother. In this role, she took on the accept position as a guide to her sons, but she does not easily defer to the powerful men of the kingdom. A series of hands to the king, the chief ministers, used various means to sideline her and demean her. One such person was her uncle, Kevin Lannister, whose put-down of Cersei was in the clip earlier. But she never relents in attempting to exert her influence. One imagines that if any of her sons had reached their majority, she would not have relinquished her power easily. She is extremely jealous with it, becoming ever more paranoid as the books and show progress, particularly with regard to the Tyrells, though I think it's fair to say that her fear was not entirely without basis. You're not really paranoid if they really are out to get you. In this, there is again a clear parallel between Cersei and Isabella of France. She ruled as a regent for her son Edward III along with Mortimer, and their court was a vicious and paranoid place as nobles constantly feared that they would be denounced and exiled. 
She refused to give up her power to her son even when he had reached teens and was eventually forced to give it up at sword point. Moving on to Marjorie, her time as queen to both Joffrey and Tommen was, slash is, depending on which canon you prefer, presented to the public as being of a classic queenly model when it came to power. Marjorie did not attempt to wield power in an unsubtle manner such as Cersei, but used it in a more behind-closed-doors sort of way. As I have said before, she used her power in acceptably feminine ways, such as in distributing food to the poor, but she also bought her food from local markets and dresses from local seamstresses. This gained her a popular following and reflected well on her husbands, none of whom were especially popular. Since she does not have any POV chapters, it's difficult to see just how much influence she had over her husband in the books, but in the TV show it is clear she is a masterful politician, bending her husband's and others to her will. She makes suggestions and convinces others that it was their idea. She pursues her own agenda, but skillfully wipes her fingerprints away before anyone notices. She is the textbook example of a wily woman exerting great power over others in a way that others either did not notice or would find acceptable. In our story, there are a few examples of women who use Marjorie's playbook, though of course from the distance of many centuries away, it's hard to know for sure. Elizabeth Woodville definitely had strong influence over her husband, using her skills to position her family in powerful places, and then using it again to help bring down her opponents such Clarence. Matilda of Boulogne, wife of King Stephen, should also be mentioned. Stephen was a very odd character, capable of moments of great daring, but also doubt. Matilda, in many ways, was his backbone, and while she stayed mostly in the shadows except in moments of great crisis, she was always there when he needed her. You can detect her hand in almost all of the good things he did, and it is noticeable that when he bulged up, it was because she was not there to help him. Finally, we have Daenerys. Women had no power in the Kalistar, but of course her main goal throughout the entire story is to gain an army and ships to help her invade the Seven Kingdoms and regain the crown that had been taken away from her father. Initially, she is unsuccessful in this, Dothraki fear the sea, and have no real desire to go conquer this island on the edge of the world. Daenerys, though, through a combination of hard sex, manipulation of the very real love building between the two, and anger over the price put on her head by King Robert, manages to persuade her husband to support her venture. She does, however, overstep the mark when she orders that all women in town sacked by the Kalisar come under her protection to protect them from being raped and or killed by the Dothraki. While this is, of course, unquestionably a moral act, it was a big overstep of her power and loses both she and Khal Drogo support from within the Kalisar. No one is, of course, quite like Daenerys, but there are examples of queens in our period using their influence over their husbands to make them do things they really did not want to. Isabella of France, in her early years on the throne, tried to steer a middle course between the king's favourite, Piers Gaveston, and the nobles at court that wanted them dead. She, of course, enriched herself in the process and secured a power base, but she did most of it for the king's own good, in an ultimately futile attempt to keep the peace. Matilda of Flanders frequently begged her husband William I to treat her eldest son Robert Curthose less harshly, throwing himself at his feet publicly and even going behind his back privately to continue to support him. That Curthose was not completely ostracised in this period is entirely down to her. Finally, Eleanor of Aquitaine, as a queen mother, spent pretty much all of her time during the reign of King John, desperately trying to prevent him from screwing up and having to clear up his messes after him. As his mother, she was probably the only person who was capable of saving John from himself, and it's no coincidence that it is after she died that things really went to hell. You can go too far in comparing the Middle Ages to the world that George R. R. Martin created in the early 90s, and then spent an infuriatingly long term fleshing out. His world has a ton of medieval influences, but it isn't supposed to be a documentary. With the medieval, you have modern 21st century values mixed in, not to mention fantasy elements, and even a bit of sci-fi here and there. 
That said, as I hope I have shown in this episode, he and the writers behind the show delved into the medieval world when creating the world that has had millions of readers and viewers hooked for decades. That simple fact, though, that the world of medieval queens, where women are supposed to give birth to and raise children, be seen and not heard when men are talking, and butt out of anything important, is not completely dead in this world. Don't believe me? Just look at what's going on in the US election, at what the Nigerian president said about his own wife this week, and at any other cultural reference that will, I'm sure, completely date this show to the listeners of the future. For you guys, thanks for being here. I hope your world is freer from this sort of thing than ours. The reasons why we are so fascinated by the past are many, but one is that we love to compare our world to that of centuries ago and see how they measure up. How we would fit in there if a time machine dropped us in, and we love stories like those of Daenerys, of Cersei and Marjorie, for the very same reason. The world that these women operated in is very different from the world that the Matildas, the Eleanors and Isabellas of English history lived, but many of the same attitudes abounded and many of the same problems existed, and some of them still to this day. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this little episode. If you did, then please let me know by email or on social media, and maybe I'll do something similar again sometime. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled programming next time when we conclude the story of Elizabeth of York. Ta-ra! What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.